Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. We see people are really from all over. Aurora, New Zealand, Vienna, Prague, Texas. Yeah, yum. Switzerland, I guess. Welcome, so, everyone. Yeah. We, are, we are very excited. Exactly. I just want to share this. I'm so excited yeah. to be yeah. meeting and speaking and connecting with Ed Franco. We... Ed used to be a, a regular speaker at our live send events, and we've missed uh, connecting and hearing and learning yeah. from Ed. So thank you for being here. And uh, maybe let's start with let's the Let's start with the real those, bio. Which I doubt that, no, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure everyone... Can I just say, can I just say something? Please. Yes. Um, I, I can hardly contain my excitement. <laughs> to be here with you guys, first of all, they haven't seen you in a while. Yeah. Because I guess you've been traveling and making movies and stuff, right? Yeah. Which is exciting, exciting. Yeah. And I can't wait to see those. Um, but also to be here with the Sand family, Science and Non-Duality family. Yeah. Um, when I gave my first presentation at Sand in 2014, so about nine years ago. It was a very intense and kind of emotional moment in my life. And I could feel the support and the connection to and the people who, yeah, the longing. people who, who gathered in that great auditorium. And I remember also at the end of the talk, Maurizio came on stage and he said, you have found a home. Yeah. You have found a home. And that's what I've, I have felt all these years, uh, that Sant is my home. So it's good to be back. Thank you. Uh, back home. And you were the first scientist oh, yeah. on that stage that also allowed to be a human being. Oh, my God. And you I were so... A collective um, longing to see the scientists, to feel the scientists also as human beings. Yeah, yeah. Who have hearts and dreams and souls and and uh, terrors, terrors too, and suffering and 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 kind of uncertainty and uh, frustration and not, not knowing, not knowing and being lost. But, but then, as part that nobody knows, that basically you went on stage with all your slides, everything was ready to go, and there was a glitch in the system. The slide didn't show up, but he found himself. That's right. Okay, I have no slides. And all of a sudden you switch it and you became a human being. And you said, let me tell you. And it became, yeah. whoa, the universal. But everybody was like. Mm. And you can see it on YouTube, by the yeah, way. Yeah, we will share a link. Here, Lisa, you can find it. Yeah. But, but let's go a step Let's go backwards. a step backwards. And let's start with the bio. Edward. We already became okay. senior here. So <laughs> that's good. Oh, you can any less. <laughs> bio of the person called Edward. Yes. So, Edward Frankel is a professor of mathematics at the University of California, Berkeley, 
a member of the American Academy of Arts and Science, and the winner of the Wild Prize in Mathematical Physics. Is the author of the international bestseller Love and Math book, which has been published in 19 languages. And most of all, as you said, Edward, you are an awesome friend, one of the rare persons in which we can have amazingly intelligent, deep conversation while we are sipping an amazing glass of wine. It's a joy and an honor to, to, to be a friend of yours for all these 10 years. Thank you for Likewise. Being Likewise. Thank you. Well, so uh, should we begin? How do we do begin? <laughs> uh, let's begin from the beginning. Uh, for mm. those of you who might not know what was Edward's journey, so what led you to mathematics? And I, I, I remember you were a lo lover of quantum physics, of physics. That's that, right. But what led you to mathematics? I want. I was as a kid. I was very curious about physics, especially elementary particles, quantum physics. But at the level of popular books, which I, when I grew up in the Soviet Union, where it was easy to, there were actually good books being published on that subject. And I was devouring those books and I was fascinated with the subject. And then what happened was there was a friend of a family who was a mathematician whose name is Evgeny Evgenievich Petrov. It's a Russian name with a patronymic for lovers of Tolstoy. This will sound familiar. Um, and uh, long story, short story long, you know, uh, he, he, I met him for the first time and he was, he told my mom, I will try to convert him into math. And I hated math. I thought I hated math because I thought mathematics was just what, uh, was shown to us at school. And I found it incredibly boring, even though I was good at it. I was a straight A student. But then there was this crucial moment where he said, okay, so you're interested in physics, in quarks. I said, what do you know about quarks? And I said, well, there's just elementary particles. They are constituents on protons, neutrons, and other particles. And he says, but do you know how physicists theorize those particles? And I said, no. And so he pulled out a book. And he showed me, and to me, this book was like the Holy Grail, you know, so it contained the secrets of the universe. And it was a mathematical book, which showed how physicists came up with these ideas based on pure, pure math, on specifically on the study of symmetries, uh, kind of groups of rotations. If you want to know more about this, by the way, this is, this is why I wrote my book, Love and Math. So um, anyway... But it was what was what it was. It was in retrospect. It was a quest for understanding the universe. Mm. And I thought at the beginning that I wanted to understand the physical reality, the world around us, the natural world around us. What I didn't realize is that underneath it is there is another layer, which is kind of a mental world, the the world of mathematics, which exists in our minds. You see, oh. and underpins our physical theories. And I was drawn to that as a kind of a um, source code, source code of the universe. Mm. I'm just curious when you say it lives in our minds, is it? Or there is also a reality that, a mathematical reality that our minds 
Um, but what are, what is what is a mind, right? So, um, and I I I use the term in our minds um, as a placeholder. So it's just to indicate it is not something that is um, uh, that we can touch necessarily. It's not something that is given to us in our perceptions. It's not something phenomenal. It is kind of a mental, these are mental objects, mental, these are concepts and ideas and abstractions. Where exactly do they live? It's a good question. Is mathematics discovered or invented? It's a age old question, which I believe does not have a simple answer. But there is some special quality to mathematics. It is something that is, um, it feels like, like it's unchangeable. It feels like it's objective. It feels like it's something that is independent of any specific human beings. It is a human activity for sure, but it is independent uh, from specific human beings. Pythagoras theorem, which we all studied at school, which was uh, is attributed to the great Greek mathematician, philosopher, and mystic Pythagoras. Um, it was discovered by him in 2,500 years ago, but it hasn't changed in, this, in all these years. It's A squared plus B squared equals C squared. It's not like next year is going to be A squared plus B squared equals C cubed, right? It's going to stay the same. And it means the same to everyone anywhere in the world, regardless of our culture, upbringing, religion, wow. race, gender, and so on. And so in this world, which it, when it feels like we are constantly arguing with each other, fighting with each other. And so question arises, is there anything that actually unites us? Is there anything that we actually have in common? And I would venture that mathematics is one of those things. <laughs> what is Every that? mathematical theorem that has ever been discovered, any mathematical theorem that will ever be discovered belongs to all of us. And it means the same to anyone, anywhere in the world at any time. We have so much in common. And no one can patent, by the way, those theorems. There is a decision of the Supreme Court of the United States, as well as the courts in other countries, saying that you cannot patent mathematics because it represents universal truth. And therefore, nobody can claim ownership of it. We all together own it. Hmm? Isn't it nice? That's amazing. That is the universal language we share, yeah. So, um, physics is actually what brought life into mathematics for you. That's and, right. And because you mentioned Pythagoras, he's also a mystic, and he saw the numbers, not as numbers, he saw some mystic the, the, reality. Right. To, to, to him and Pythagoreans, numbers were infused with the divine. They were not just clerical devices as we look at them today. They had a much deeper understanding and much deeper connection to mathematics. In my do opinion. you share that? Do you understand that? Do you, is that also how you relate to today? And I, I, I would just, maybe the question is how your relationship to mathematics has changed over time, evolved over time. Well, uh, so there's several facets of that. As I became more aware of myself, I became more aware of what it is that I'm doing. 
I became more aware of what draws have has always drawn me to mathematics. And in that sense, it also helped me to focus more more clearly on what I really like to do, as opposed to running after achievements or awards or recognition, which as gradually, in part through science non-duality conferences and uh, through interactions with great sages that I have met through the science and non-duality conference, as well as others, I have be, as I became more aware of myself and and I became more became more clear what things are important, what things are not important, and then also understanding the magic and the and the and the, mir- the miracle of mathematics and the important role it plays, and also the travesty of how few people uh, had the opportunity to experience it and to know about it uh, the way I could. So which prompted me to, you know, write, write Love and Math, to do various public speaking and so on, opening the, door, the doors to these museums of mathematics, which had been locked from most of us. So that's, that's, that's been the process. And at some point, uh, to be honest, I got so involved in this um, journey of communication, of education, of connecting and sharing knowledge, that I started questioning myself, am I actually going to go back to research, which was my passion always, mathematical research? I wasn't sure. And then it, it, a miracle happened. I, I remembered that passion. I remembered that joy as a 16-year-old, as a you know, year old or 19-year-old or, you know, in my early 20s, when I literally went to, I wanted to go to sleep and fall asleep faster so that I could wake up and continue uh, see, you know, experiencing that beauty of mathematical problems that I was working on. And I rediscovered it. And so last, um, last three years, four years, no, last five years, it's been kind of a renaissance in my research. And I've written, I've opened a new project kind of, which is a new chapter in the so-called Langlands program with my two co-authors, Pavel Etingov and David Kashdan. And I'm about to publish my scientific paper number 100. I'm going to do it probably on Monday with another collaborator, David Hernandez, who is a mathematician in Paris. So I've been very involved in my mathematical research and kind of rediscovering that child's fascination with it. But combined with, shall we say, maybe maturity to some extent of an adult. Beautiful. Yeah, the maturation is going on all levels of your of your life. Yeah. I want to say something. Yes, I'm please. so in awe by the fact that what I was saying that you can talk about the most amazing internet always with a smile and you can make light of everything. It's, it's so refreshing to me that you can take, you can make things so light. And I want to stop here. Please go on. I just have to say that. I mean, how can I not smile seeing you two <laughs> and all the, all the sound family here? I'm really excited. Honestly, I can I can hardly contain myself. It's been a while. And, you know, honestly, I, I just like, like everybody else, I, have moments of, you know, when I kind of despair and say, ah, things are not going well, whatever. 
But then I don't know where this optimism comes from. Maybe because I'm Russian, you know, so we are we are pessimistic on the outside, but optimistic on the inside. <laughs> there is a sense of the, of the miracle of the, how miraculous it is to be alive, to how miraculous it is to be able to play, to have a conversation, to meet with friends, to you know. Yeah. And sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget, and we should not forget. And which brings me actually to what I really wanted to talk about, which is I believe that science can actually play a role in this process of remembering who we are, of recognition of our true nature. Now, it sounds a bit cliche, but bear with me. What I have noticed in the last few years, especially, is that what happens in the in the popular books about science actually is pushing people in the wrong direction, in the opposite direction. Instead of showing the beauty of nature and our connection to nature, it is pushing people to believe that they are separate from nature, they are separate from each other, that they are just a person and nothing else with name, attribution, a postal address, and an email and a social security number. What happened? Science was supposed to be this, you know, this project of which goes against dogma. In fact, scientific revolution happened because it was a rebellion against dogma of the church, dogma of authoritarian system, right? And so it was the quest to uh, discover something that we all have in common. So therefore, originally the project was to show us that we are all connected. For instance, what I just talked about, about mathematics, how come all these mathematical truths mean the same thing to everyone? If we were all separate agents, how could it possibly happen that we all share this knowledge, which across time and space, you see? So, but what happens today, unfortunately, is a really, really uh, alarming process, in my opinion, I want to, and I want to address that head on, directly. Uh, what I want to say is that a lot of people don't have a chance to learn science and mathematics the way I did. It's really, a, it was, I feel like I'm in a privileged position. To, to, because of the really, let's be honest, atrocious state of our science and math education. And so therefore, people who would like to learn about science, they have to rely on the popular books, on, on lectures and so on, of specific scientists. And they're not always up to the task. Because you cannot, if you cannot find out on your own, what else are you going to do? So of course you're going to listen to experts. And unfortunately these experts are not always, um, they are themselves, they seem to be, they seem to be caught up in the fallacies of 19th century uh, science. And they are, what they are presenting to us uh, is not um, really informed by modern science, by the science of the 20th and 21st century. And I would say the most important aspect of the moderns of modern science and mathematics is the first person perspective, is that the first person perspective now has, is squarely in the middle, in the center, front and center of modern science. You can see that in quantum mechanics where you cannot separate the observer and the observed. 
You can see that in Einstein's relativity theory, where time and space are relative, <clears throat> relative to whom? To the observer. You can see that in mathematics, where it's more hidden, but mathematics is based on axioms and who chooses axioms. They were not given to us like the tablets to Moses. We human mathematicians, we choose them. So we are involved in the process. That is the most important aspect of that I believe of modern science, that, that modern science points to clearly. Mm -hmm. The other aspect is incompleteness. The fact that whatever we know, how, however we think much we know, it is always incomplete. There is always more. And therefore we have to resist the temptation to say that we can explain everything with the knowledge that we have already acquired. What a silly proposition, if you think about it. How come 200 years ago, we would say, oh, this, people were, most people, even including scientists, were religious. So they said God created the universe and so on. So now we laugh at it. Some of us laugh at it and say, okay, well, they obviously were misinformed. But what gives us, isn't it suspicious to, you know, to believe that somehow we are better than Isaac Newton or Blaise Pascal, that somehow we are exactly at this sweet spot where we have acquired just enough knowledge to understand everything. It's a, <laughs> so <laughs> you see what I mean? And therefore, and therefore we have to resist those people who come to us and in the name of science, which in my opinion is pseudoscience really, not is contradicts to science, come and say, you are this. And the world is like that. And we already know it. And that's what modern science tells us. It, I am here. I am here to debunk, <laughs> to debunk those theories. today that there is a separate individual at the center of life let me give you let me yeah. give you a couple of examples how about that otherwise it looks like a strawman argument as if i am fighting with somebody who doesn't exist okay so i, I give you i am going to give you three examples yeah so my exhibit a <laughs> my exhibit a is brian green a physicist a, a, a very good physicist and a great popularizer. Yeah. I remember reading his book, you know, uh, Elegant you. Universe, uh, really, really well, you know, very informative, lucid, you know, fascinating book. But lately, he has been uh, uh, caught up in a dogma, which he is trying to present to us as if it is based on science. And so here's a quote that from an interview he gave a couple of years ago. You and I are both just big collections of particles. You and I are just big collections of particles. Huh? And those particles are fully governed by the ironclad laws of physics. Every action you take, every decision you make, every thought that you have is nothing but your particles moving from this configuration to that configuration. 
And that move is fully governed by mathematics. This process was set in motion a long time ago. And your, par your particles are merely carrying out their quantum mechanical marching orders. You see? So this is 19th century, uh, as famously summarized by French scientist, mathematician, Pierre-Simon Laplace. According to the understanding of science of 19th century, he wrote an intellect which at a certain moment would know all forces that set nature in motion and all positions of all items of which nature is composed. If this intellect were also vast enough to submit this data to analysis, it would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atom. For such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain in the future just like the past would be present before its eyes. This was based on an understanding of uh, physics of the 19th century. They have discovered differential equations. They have discovered that many processes in nature could be described by differential equations. That's, that was the first idea. The second idea is the idea of reductionism, that you can break everything into pieces, into atoms, elementary particles, and so on. So then naturally the idea was, well, if we can find the evolution of every particle. If, 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 if the whole universe is a collection of particles and every particle is described by differential equation, you can solve this equation and therefore you know everything. So total determinism, no free will and so on. Now the problem was this, as we see now, and actually not only now, as we have seen since the advent of quantum mechanics, which was essentially 19... 1920s, 1930s, it was already pretty on pretty solid ground. So almost 100 years ago, the, the, what we see now is that this program is impossible for the simple reason that you cannot possibly know the initial conditions of those particles, even if it were true that the universe could be described as a collection of particles, you would not be able to figure out, to calculate the evolution of those particles. Because the initial condition has to include not only position, but also the velocity of the particle. In other words, if you know where the car was in this moment, you're not going to know where it will be in five seconds, even if you knew that it was going in a straight line with constant speed. You need to know what the speed is and in which direction it's going, right? That's velocity. In other words, you need to know both position and velocity of every particle. Velocity is the same as momentum. Momentum is velocity multiplied by mass. So you need to know both coordinate and momentum. And I'm sure as you know, you cannot know both. Quantum mechanics tells us that you cannot know both the coordinate and momentum of a particle. This is called Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So Laplacian determinism collapses. It doesn't work. Why you have somebody in the 21st century who's actually well-educated in physics, who's telling you that you're a bag of particles, which are based on mathematical equations. There are no such equations. So that's the first point. The second point, there are no such things as particles. This is another thing we've, know, we've learned. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people will be surprised when I say that. But let me kind of explain it by way of analogy. You know how... Sometimes you make a, a ice, the, you know, like in a freezer, you have this tray, you know what I mean, with separations, and you pour water in it, okay? And you put it in your freezer, right? 
So after a couple of hours, you got your ice cubes. So then to say that the, the world is a collection of particles is like to say the water is a collection of ice cubes. Yes, in some situation, there is a useful approximation to this in, in particular state of water, in particular place, it's a useful approximation. But it's not like this part, these cubes have independent existence. And if you take it out, they will melt and the water will go to a completely different state. It's exactly like this with particles. Particles is an abstraction. In classical physics, they actually made sense. In quantum mechanics, already we understood that particles to be seen as waves, depending on how we set up experiments. But quantum mechanics is incomplete because it is incompatible with Einstein's relativity theory, special relativity theory. Quantum mechanics is based on Schrodinger equation, for example, the evolution of the system when it's not disturbed by observation, is described by Schrodinger equation. And Schrodinger equation has the first time derivative and the second spatial derivatives. So time and space are distinguished in the equation. And therefore, it is not invariant under, uh, it's not invariant under Lorentz transformation. It's not invariant under the symmetries of special relativity. So quantum mechanics is incomplete. And what replaces it, that paradigm gets replaced by what's called quantum field theory. In quantum field theory, particle states are approximate states, which actually, as all physicists agree, make no sense if you don't have a particular specific, if you don't specify a particular specific vacuum state. And in a curved space time, there isn't an obvious vacuum state. So therefore the whole thing, this whole idea of particles it's a misnomer, it's an approximation. It is useful, just like it's useful to have ice cubes, to talk about them in a particular situation as an approximate state. But it's not like the universe is a collection of particles. They dissipate, they melt, just like ice cubes. You see what I mean? So the whole thing collapses. And yet you have a scientist who is telling people that you're a bag of particles. So this is the first. Now, what is what do I find especially troubling, troubling with this idea is because it suggests that you are confined in your body because your, your collection of particles. Now, if he says your collection of particles of the whole universe, that's a different matter. Yes. Okay. This we can work with. If he says you are the universe, remember how in one of the science non-duality conferences, you had t-shirts with Rumi. the uh, Rumi's quote, you are a universe, uh, you are a, a universe in, in ecstatic dance? There was a t-shirt. Ecstatic motion. In ecstatic motion. Okay, so if Brian Green meant that you, you, you and I the same collection of particles, and it is the collection of particles of the whole universe as a figure of speech, that would be close to the truth, I suppose. But that's not what he means. He means you are a collection of particles within your body, right? So that means, that already fortifies my sense that I'm locked in the skin of my body. I am just this body and nothing else. So I'm separate. I'm being taught that I am that modern and being, I'm being told, I'm being told that modern science tells us that we are separate from each other because of course we're separate because I am a bag of this bag of particles. Zaya is that bag of particles. Maurizio is that bag of particles and so on. And so here we go, these bags of particles going around each other and so on. You see, but the point is, there is no basis in this. 
So now there is one loophole. There are a couple of loopholes that you could say. First of all, they say, oh, what about many worlds interpretation? Many worlds interpretation is, uh, is the idea that actually the universe splits every time we make an observation. So in fact, the evolution of the universe is given by evolution of some wave function according to Schrodinger equation. So first of all, yes, if you can feel yourself to be, to be the wave function, all power to you. If you can feel yourself, then it becomes deterministic, but across all universes. But if you're experiencing this universe the way I do, it doesn't help you to know that it splits to other universes because they don't communicate with each other, you see? And that's number one. And number two, it's still non-relativistic. It is still non-relativistic. So why are we even spending time talking about many worlds interpretation? when we know that it's not compatible with Einstein's special relativity. What is relativistic is quantum field theory. And in quantum field theory, all of these things melt just like ice cubes, you see. So now this is already, there is another loophole which is called superdeterminism. I don't think I should spend time on it. Yes, there are ways to try to reintroduce determinism in quantum theory, there are ways, but let's be honest about it. This is not mainstream by far. Less than one percent, I would say, scientists scientists who believe who believe that that's the case, and it seems like a, a huge effort to accommodate a belief, to accommodate a belief. So, in other words, if I would like to believe that the world is deterministic, if I would like to believe that I have no freedom, I will find a loophole in what I just said for sure. But modern mainstream modern science is not um, following that. So that's the first. Do you have any thoughts? I'm like, I'm no. on the ice cream. was that was that was that too much? No, no, no. no, no. It's I mean, like it's like a bucket of ice, a bucket of ice, and on, 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 oh, a bucket my of ice. ice. No, it, it's. I have a lot of questions, but I'd like to continue because this. Yes. Is, so now exhibit B. Okay. So can I? I'll. I'll I promise I will. I will, I will be brief. Exhibit B is a recent book by Robert Sapolsky. Oh. Who is a who is a, a, a neurobiologist at uh, Stanford okay. University and a world uh, renowned authority on baboons? He, he I don't know if you know yeah. this. He was at Stanford years after you. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Once. So he has been studying baboons for thirty years, and his book he says that he spends a few months every year for the last thirty years in Kenya in a baboon habitat studying baboons, which is amazing. So he wrote this book, which is called Determined in which he claims that the, everything is deterministic and there's no free will. And so according to him, every living organism is a biological machine. Consciousness originates from the brain whose activity is described by activity of a, of a bunch of neurons. So that is not even questioned. Th those assumptions are not questioned. Now, how do we know the consciousness comes from the brain? So just, it's, it's just asking for a friend. Who, to, who, who can I talk to about this? Who can prove it to me? Yes, there is a neural activity in the brain when I think or when I feel, when I perceive, when I experience. But likewise, when I look at watch Netflix shows, there is some activity on my TV. Do my Netflix shows come from my TV set? Well, I guess that would explain why some of them are so lame. You know, maybe I should get a new model and then this would improve the quality 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm just like, no, it cracks me up. It cracks me up that he does not even, I, re- I read the book. He does not even say, actually, we don't have a proof that consciousness originates from the brain. We don't, we don't, but that will be our assumption in this book. That would be fair. Of course, science is always based on hypothesis. This is your hypo- hypothesis, but say it up front. Don't pretend that this is something that is set in stone. Yeah. You see what I mean? I remember at Sen we had one panel only about what is consciousness between five different scientists, and they could not agree. No, and exactly. But, and, and by the way, you know, one of my heroes, one of my heroes, uh, Kurt Gödel, who was a great logician, right? So proved his famous uh, incompleteness theorems, which kind of really appended our understanding of what mathematics is and how it operates. So he's, on, he's it's known that he said that he said that the idea that consciousness originates from matter is a prejudice of our times. And he actually believed that science would be able to prove that it's a fallacy. For example, by showing that there are not enough neurons in the brain to create, to be able to replicate, to create certain activities, certain behaviors. And actually there are works like this. So uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jerome Jerry Feldman, is a professor emeritus at Berkeley and founding director of the Berkeley International Computer Science Institute. If you look at the list of his students and grand students, you know, students of his students, this is who is who, is who in machine learning, artificial intelligence and so on. So he's a neuroscientist and computer scientist. He wrote a book, a paper, by the way, I was introduced to him by Stanley Klein, who was a, also a perennial participant of Science Non-Duality Conference. Uh, Jerry wrote a paper in 2016 in which he says that there are not enough neurons in the brain to be able to create certain things that we experience every time we open our eyes. There are two things, two phenomena, stability of vision. If I, if I turn my head around, I don't feel there is no jerky motion. It looks stable. If you try to do it with a camera, you will get a different result. So, so if the model, if the, if the prevalent model of neuroscience today, which is that everything comes from computation or some kind of processes in the neural activity, if it were true, this would mean that it would have to happen somewhere. Some kind of computation would have to happen to correct for those jerky motion to create the illusion of stability. He did calculations showing there isn't such a place. It's already taken. The, the real estate in the brain is already taken by other things, okay? Second problem is called the binding problem. I'm not going to. So perhaps I could- From something outside the brain that, that is being corrected. We don't know. In we don't field. know, but the question but it's is- not in the brain. There is, there is a lot of evidence that the standard model of neuroscience is incomplete. Mm. Now, why do I think it's important? For the same reason as the idea you're a bag of particles. The idea uh, that you're a bunch of neurons locked in your brain, all there is to your awareness 
is some mechanical processes happening in the brain by some nerve cells hitting each other or communicating with each other. Again, it fortifies the sense of separation. It fortifies the sense that I am separate from other people. I am separate from nature because I'm locked. Obviously, I'm locked in my head. Now, I oftentimes feel like I'm locked in my head. <laughs> but let's go to number two. Number from three. The paper, so that was number so three. The paper, and then we go to number three. But that's now- right. And so then he says, when you behave in a particular way, your brain generates particular behavior. And it is because of determinism that came just before, which was caused by determinism just before, and so on. Every aspect of behavior has deterministic prior causes. And so when you observe a behavior, you can answer why it occurred because of the action of neurons in this or that part of your brain. Just like Brian Green, every decision you make, every thought that you have is nothing but your particles moving from this configuration to that configuration. Why is it so appealing to modern scientists to believe that everything that's happening is kind of has this mechanistic machine-like character or, uh, you know, property, quality, that somehow it's happening by itself, by some kind of blind forces that put this in motion. Alan Watts talked about it. He called it a fully automated model of the universe. A bunch of billiard billiard balls called particles, you know, flying around, obeying some blind forces. So where is my agency? So then of course he says, if that's correct, of course then he says, so only meaning, meaning only feels real. Purpose only feels real. It talks about machineness. That a real experience is a machine-like experience. It's weird. Machi- we have weird machines that feel as if feelings are real. And then the journalist in an interview asks him, "Do we lose love too?" He answers, "Yeah, yeah." yeah. So you know how did we go from science being having the slow the motor? Science, we will enlighten you, right? How did we go from that to a new slogan, which seems to be science, we will make you feel like zombie, which is what they're trying to do, right? So this feeling of free will is not real because your bag of particles are being some equations or because your consciousness, your awareness is just a mechanical process of some nerve cells in my head. You see, and in both cases, in both cases, they are based on some assumptions, which in the case of Brian Green, in the case of determinism, based on the idea of reductionism, of breaking things into so-called particles, and then using some equations describing them, it's just completely patently false, according to quantum theory. In the case of Sapolsky, in the case of brain activity, is based on the assumption that consciousness comes from the brain, which is a hypothesis. I'm not saying... I, I don't think we can falsify it yet, even though there are arguments which show that modern theory is incomplete. And by the way, free will is a, a very finicky notion, in my opinion. I prefer the word freedom. I prefer the word, word freedom because free will then it becomes whose free will. Exactly. That was my question. And this is where... about that Because that's where, you know, the age-old Advaita Vedanta non-duality... That's right. There is no free will, right? Because there's no free will for for a person. A separate self. That is that seems to be a reasonable assumption. Because we are and, not you know, self, right? but but we are not. So uh, Francis Lucille, whom I met 
through sand. And actually, you guys introduced me to him in 2015. And he is, he is my, te- I can say he's my teacher. I've learned so much from him, from his uh, uh, lectures and books and also from personal interaction. I just talked to him actually a couple of weeks ago. So Francis Lucille was asked this question, but free will at sand 2015, I think. And he said, the bad news is that a person has no free will. The good news is you're not a person. You're much more than that. And so that sense of freedom that I have, that sense of freedom I have right now talking to you, that intuition is real, but attributing it to Edward Frankel perhaps is incorrect. I agree. And on that, I can agree with, you know, in other words, if you rephrase Robert Sapolsky mm-hmm. and say, you have no free will as a person, but he can't do that because for him, consciousness comes from the brain. So therefore it is automatically attributed to a person, you see. And so in a person, that sense of freedom, that sense of freedom, how precious is that? What is the reason to abandon it? What is the reason? And he explains why. And it's kind of, you know, endearing, honestly, because he says, if you believe you have no free, free will, then you believe other people have no free will, then you're more forgiving. You, are, you don't blame other people. You don't envy people and so on. So in other words, he, he envies people and he blames people. And the only way he can see to stop blaming people is to deny his freedom altogether. You see? And then, which is fine. It's it's a coping mechanism. I understand being a human being is hard. Okay. So let's agree on that. It's a very, it can be very traumatic experience. And we all at times come up with some narratives to help us survive. Quite frankly, I talked about childhood trauma in my first two uh, uh, lectures at Sand. 2014, 2015, which was very real for me to rediscover those parts of myself that I kind of chopped off because of some traumatic experiences as a kid and recognizing that and reconnecting to them. I know how hard it is. I know how painful it is. I know that sometimes the pain is too much Mm -hmm. and we choose a narrative as a kind of anesthetic. I understand and appreciate and love Robert Sapolsky for finding a narrative to help himself be a better human, what he thinks, perhaps. What I don't appreciate is doing it as if it is scientific fact and to pushing these ideas on other people who did not have a chance to learn the science that he talks about and therefore are forced to believe him or at least are encouraged to believe him. Whereas what he is saying is based on assumptions that have not been proved by science. You see, that's what bothers me. Mm. And I see a system in this. You're a bag of particles. You are a bunch of neurons. And again, as I said, what unifies these two points of view is you are separate. You're separate from everybody else. And as, as a, uh, you're separate from nature. Mm-hmm. So the, the whole the world is by definition adversarial. You have to fight. You have to fight. But it's not even your fault because you have no free will. <laughs> you see, as Alan Watts, Alan Watts like to quote a poet Hausman in this regard. I, a stranger and afraid in a world I never made. That is the idea that is being instilled in us now 
But not in the name of religion, but in the name of science. What a travesty. What a travesty. And, you know, honestly, that's not all. There is one more. You are a, 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 your computer. Your computer. You're a sequence of zeros and ones. And soon there will be better computers than you. They're called artificial intelligence. And if you're lucky, they will keep you as plants or pets. And otherwise, they probably get rid of you. And maybe it's for the better. You see, again, in the name of science. Again, in the name of science. So in other words, by the way, there's one more thing I want to say about this. I recently talked to someone who was a, a very extremely successful uh, investment banker on Wall Street. He's retired now, and he's very versed in science. So we had an interesting conversation about these topics and about how there is this trend now in science, of, among scientists, of, of, of saying everything is deterministic, everything can be broken into pieces, and then those pieces are based on mechanistic, follow some mechanistic procedures, some equations, or whatever. And you have no free will as a result. He says, in my world, on Wall Street, oh yeah, they, they all believe that they have free will. So the question I want to ask, who benefits? Who benefits from this idea that there is no such thing as freedom? Who benefits from the idea that wow. everything is determined by motion of some particles or some bits or some neurons? It's like you're a cognitive machine. Just do your job and don't ask too many questions. That's what it feels like to me. Why are scientists involved in the project of confusing people this way? That's why, I mean, you can see I'm very passionate about it. And I've spoken about it already a bunch of times. And I know science, people look up to science as something that is objective, as something that we can all agree on, that something is beyond ideology or dogma. But look what we what look what real human scientists are doing today. Confusing us and themselves in the name of science, in the name of something that is not is not real. And they turn the blind eye to the arguments that contradict their ideas that they push on us. You see, so this is where we are. Now I have a bunch of things I want to tell talk about in regards to, so I, I have given a brief argument why the idea that your collection of particles contradicts modern science. I have given some indications of how um, the idea that you're a bunch of neurons, how it could be falsified, right? So in, in any case, it's based on an assumption. Also, the idea that free will, as I pointed out, who's free will? Who's free will? Uh, Rupert, Rupert Spira. Let's, let me mention another great sage. So I already mentioned Franz Lucille, whom I, who is my teacher, whom I met through science non-duality. Rupert Spira, I've been watching his le lectures, his videos, last couple of years. He's really... I enjoy very much is to me, Rupert Spira is like a Rumi for the scientific age. You know, he's the poetry of his teaching. The passion of his teaching is really something special. Um, so also I want to, since I'm talking about this, uh, Hamid Ali Almas is a, 
also a dear friend whom I met, and I have, I've learned so much from him and his books, also met from Science and Duality, and Adyashanti, with whom I actually did an event in 2017. I did one with Francis Lucille as well. But Rupert has a great analogy for this, you know, and he says, it's like, my version is, Thomas Anderson is, a, is an actor who lives in Brooklyn, New York, and he leads a pretty ordinary Same. life. And then in the evening, he puts on clothes and makeup. He goes on stage, it's Hamlet. To be or not to be? Does he have, does Hamlet have a free will? No, because Hamlet is the character, is the role Thomas Anderson is playing. Right. So Hamlet is an activity, as Rupert would say, is an activity of Thomas Anderson's mind. The only one who is real has always been, uh, actors sometimes can get so absorbed in the role, they start believing that they're Hamlet, right? Doesn't mean that Hamlet has free will, but Thomas Anderson does. For one thing, he doesn't fall off the stage while playing. He can always stop. He's following some dialogue, but he chose to do it. That was his choice, right? It was his choice to play. That was his creativity, the freedom of expressing himself in this way. So every I, what I find curious is that somebody like Sapolsky doesn't even consider the possibility that there is that you are not confined into your body that your consciousness is not confined to your brain, that there is something more. When all of modern science points to that, in particular, the first person perspective, the importance and the essential nature of first person perspective that I talked about earlier, and also the idea that we are always, that knowledge is incomplete. Which brings me to Albert Einstein. Imagination is more important than knowledge, said Einstein. For knowledge is limited and imagination encircles the entire world. Where, where are the sages now? How do you go from Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, and earlier, Blaise Pascal, Newton, um, Alan Turing, Kurt Gödel, Pythagoras? How do you go from, from that, you know, depth? depth and, and, and understanding that there is more. And I would even venture to say, they are, we say, oh, they're mystics, you know, but how come all the great scientists who have done anything of value were all somehow great mystics? And I think the standard theory is, oh, because they're kind of loony, because, you know, to do some, uh, break gr- the groundbreaking work, you have to be a little crazy. But I, ha- I have a different hypothesis because I know that my discoveries in mathematics do not come from thinking. They come when thinking stops. There is a different, there are other ways of cognition. I don't know where it comes from, but I know it doesn't come from Edward. Confined into this body. You see, those, they are mystics for a reason because that's how they were able to download those great discoveries. That's my hypothesis. Okay, so maybe I might be wrong, but think about it. 
Think about it. So, a lot, Srinivasa Ramanujan, a great Indian mathematician, received, he, he came up with conjectures which nobody could prove. He was then mentored by G.H. Hardy, a great English mathematician in Cambridge. And he was teaching Ramanujan to prove things. Ramanujan did not even have an idea how to prove things. When asked where he received those formulas, which, which, uh, uh, which um, Hardy once wrote, those formulas must be true because otherwise nobody, nobody would have the imagination to come up with them. Right. Well, an individual can come up. When asked, when asked where he got them, because he didn't, he didn't follow the standard procedure of mathematicians, he said he received them in, a, in dreams. Goddess Namagiri, who was the family deity in India, his family, came to him and drew those formulas. And he, when he would wake up, he would write them down on paper. That's how he received them. Now, which neurons, I wonder, I wonder which neurons were hitting each other in his brain to <laughs> make this happen? You see, now, this doesn't prove anything, but there's just accumulation of evidence that there is more. Not to mention Gödel's incompleteness theorems and Turing's, Alan Turing's work, but by the way, Alan Turing said there is will, there is such a thing as will. He is on record saying that the father of modern computing, you know, and saying that computers, machines are only capable of doing some clerical work without true understanding. Now, the word intelligence comes from Latin intelligere, which means understanding. How can you call this computer program programs intelligent if they do not have any true understanding? And so on. So this this is basic. There is a lot more that I can say about this, but maybe it's time to open it for questions. <laughs> I was a, that was a handful. It was a journey. That was a powerful. Wow. Because this is the word of our time. Do you see any, I mean, yeah, any, uh, undeniably AI is shaping the way we communicate, the way we start to think even. There is an impact. Yes. yes. And it's fantastic. It's like we create human beings have always created tools to, so that we can be more creative. And it doesn't mean that those tools are going to take over. It doesn't mean that we have to assign to them agency. How interesting. On, in, one, in one sentence, they say, you have no free will, right? You, can be, you have no, but AI does somehow. <laughs> how, come, how come the AI has it, but not human beings? It's kind of contradictory to me, no? But also, you know, an um, example I like to give. And I heard it from a friend of mine who's an artist. Says, she said, when camera, photo camera was invented, did artists say, oh, that's it for us? The, we will become slaves of the camera. 
No, they understood that the art was no longer about realistic depiction, right? Because camera could do could render, uh, you know, a um, landscape even more clearly than an artist. But they understood. They took it as a challenge. What can we do that the camera cannot do? Why today I see so many people express this defeatist uh, I, uh, attitude? That's it for humans, because AI will supplant us, replace us, exterminate us, and so on. How about saying, uh -huh, so what I used to think was creative can actually be obtained by regurgitating and reshuffling what has been done before. Huh, interesting. So let's up our game. What do we bring to the table? What can I do that chat GPT cannot do? How about that? That's what being human is. That's what human evolution is about, is about bringing our best and being challenged and challenging ourselves, which is what we are doing. We are challenging ourselves with these computer programs, you see? And so, but, Kurt Biodel, you know, 1951 gives lecture, gives lecture to the American Mathematical Society. Human mind infinitely surpasses the powers of any finite machines. He gives a mathematical argument for it, which was later elaborated and elucidated by Lucas and Penrose. Roger Penrose, Sir Roger Penrose wrote two books about it. He says there is something in our conscious thought process that eludes computation. We have access to mathematical truths that are beyond any robot's capabilities. And that's what Alan Turing thought too. He said, he talked about limitations, inadequacy of reason unsupported by common sense. Re reason unsupported by common sense is not enough. Imagination is more important than knowledge, Albert Einstein. How about we go back to that? Instead of fooling ourselves with these ideas of separation and being a bunch of this or that, either bits, or particles or neurons. Those go, go along with what we are. Yes, of course, but we are not that. It's not only that. Yeah, yeah. and it has shaped our world and is not looking good the way- But, but the problem is people believe that this is a scientific uh, knowledge. They believe that this is what science says. Okay, okay, so, so my intuition tells me that's not the case, but scientists tell me this. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm crazy. I, I talk to people, by the way, like that, they were, they were very happy when I told them that these ideas have no basis in science, or at least that they are hypotheses and not facts. They were very happy because they said, oh, I thought I was crazy. You see? So. I'm feeling the questions coming in very okay. intensely. So let's go right. here and bring uh, some of our friends on screen. You you've read here? Yeah, we didn't give instruction on the okay, question. Okay, so you can raise your hand and say, Oh, I see Kyla over there. Yeah, Kyla. Hi, I Kyla. Yeah, I see Peter here. So I want to ask everyone, please keep your questions short. Peter, I saw bring too much theory so we can hear more people, right? Yes. Yeah. And, I, I, and I promise to be brief too. Okay, so we can hear more voices here. Okay, so let's start Angela then. Angela, we're going to unmute. There, there it is. Okay. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Right. Um, 
I make it clear. I'm phoning. I'm speaking from the UK, right? So, um, well, nobody's perfect, you know. <laughs> definitely not. It's a joke. I picked up on your words, um, first-person perspective, um, and mysticism, not being scientific by background, but much more mystical by background. Um, I'm speaking from lived experience, um, and I'm very, I've always been interested since I first heard of them um, about quantum theory. And I'm just putting it to you that we've heard a lot about theory, but I'm talking from lived experience. And I have, amazing to me, proof that I actually was in two places at one time. Um, it didn't feel like that because everything in our experience is linear. So yeah. it's only because I have the documentary proof that I know that on New Year's Eve 1970, I was both in London and in Scotland with two different lots of people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There are plenty, there's plenty of this. Thank you for sharing it. I mean, I, what comes to mind is uh, Philip K. Dick, you know, the famous um, author uh, whose book, uh, books, many famous films were based like Blade Runner and so on. So I, I read his uh, memoirs and uh, he's talking about a period in his life where for a few months he was simultaneously in California in the 1970s and also in uh, in Rome, two thousand years earlier, uh, or less, a little bit less, nineteen hundred maybe, uh, one of the early Christians, and this was all was all triggered by a certain image he had, and he says it's hard to explain, but that's what I felt. I was in both places, and I was very functional in both places at the same time. So there is there is plenty of evidence of the, of this nature. Now. What is important to understand here is that people, usually, typically, scientists would say, well, prove it to me. But you cannot, this is exactly the type of experience which is outside of the purview of, of a lab. It is a unique experience. It's a live, like you said, lived experience. So there are such things which are not necessarily subject to serialization. You cannot repeat this. You may not be able to repeat it, although who knows, maybe in the future we can. And we have to accept, and I think to me, you know, I, I feel, I'm an optimist. I feel we're entering the age of Aquarius, which is another topic I'm very, you know, excited about. Uh, and one of the points that for, for one of the requirements for entry is to understand that there are certain things which are not phenomenal experiences. It's not something that is just obje objective experience that you can reproduce in a, in a lab and accept this fact and trust your own living experience. It doesn't mean that you only trust your own. It doesn't mean that you discount objective experiences. No, you just consider both types of experiences, you see. And demanding proof of what you just described, which I, I think a lot of scientists who would you know, disagree with us would do is, and here I want to use another metaphor by Rupert Spira, is like, someone who has uh, orange tinted glasses and they say, show me the whiteness of the snow. You can't see the whiteness of the snow with those glasses on. So just take them off and you will see. Likewise, 
demanding an objective proof of this type of first-person subjective experience is like demanding to see um, the whiteness of snow without removing your orange tinted glasses. Stop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Angela. So many questions. So many people. We want to bring actually Peter Russell, who is part of the Senate. Yes. He's the president of the Senate board. So we bow. To Hi, the Peter. President. Hi, Good, great to see you. Yes. I don't think being president of Sand um, gives me any greater uh, right to speak about this. But anyway, um, I've got so many notes here. I mean, I, I'm trying to keep it brief, but I'd love to get together with you. Since we're fairly local, I'd love to get together with you for an hour or two. I think there's so much to it. Sure, I'd love to. Um, first of all, you know, your your whole thing about um, determinism. I totally agree. I mean, I would add to that, you know, uh, random decay at a quantum level, chaos theory, all means it's not it's, it's not predictable. I think the old idea of a predict predictability has gone out some time ago. So in a way, that's we're done with that. We can just say it isn't predictable. However, I mean, there's still the question which you touch on around consciousness, around does does the brain, even though it's unpredictable, its current state, does nevertheless the state of the brain determine what appears in consciousness? It's a different sense of determine. And what you're saying about, is it Sarpolsky? I never remember how to pronounce his name, but, and many other people, they assume that consciousness is generated by the brain. And that, that's, that's right. And they don't even say that it is their assumption. It is so deeply entrenched that they do not feel, like, it's, it's like the sun rises in the morning. So like this kind of statement for them. Yeah. And this is where I think scientists have to be a little bit more open to other ideas. Right. But you see, I think there's two questions here which get confabulated, put together. One is, does the brain give rise to consciousness as such, which is the ability to have an inner subjective experience? Right. And does activity in the brain determine the activity that appears in consciousness? That's right. So they're two, they're two different questions which people can... 100%. Feel. 100%. And on both counts, I think, it's a very it's an assumption, it's a hypothesis to say... Yes, to both. You see what I mean? Right. And I think we're, you know, we're non-duality. One of, one of the interpretations of non-duality is that the consciousness, and this is where, you know, some people like David Chalmers and people are going, is that consciousness pre-exists. It is part of part sure. of the cosmos. And so in that sense... At or at least it's something that we know for sure. So this is another argument, which, by the way, goes back to old Advaita, and which I heard from my teachers that I mentioned, uh, Franz Lucio and uh, Rupert, Teach, uh, Rupert Spira and uh, uh, Almas, uh, you know, H.A.L.M. Almas, and others. It's always, they put it this way, is what do you know for sure? You know for sure that you're aware. So, right? So now... Everything else is a hypothesis, is an abstraction. For instance, matter. There's such a thing as matter. There's such a thing as particle. I already spent some time explaining that modern physicists understand very well, and I have a great quote from Ed Witten here to, 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 to back it up. It is an approximation. It's not real. It doesn't have, particles do not have any real existence. So in other words, something we theorize. So then the question becomes, should I start my investigation of nature or reality from what I know for sure, which is my awareness? Or should I start from the opposite end, which is sort of infinitely far, by postulating some particles, some uh, that are based on the rules and so on, and say, and then say, oh, the hard question is, how does my awareness come from that? Now, the only reason 
uh, I, I can imagine why somebody would do that. And it is such a prevalent thing, right, today. It's because you don't want to admit who you are. You simply don't want, which is okay with me. Play the game of being a separate being as much as you want. Pretend that you have no free will. Pretend that you wrote a book that there is no free will, but you had no free will to do it. Yes, absolutely. But stop confusing people. Stop telling people that this is what science tells us. That is simply not the case. Very much agree with that, yeah. But this brings on to um, another way of looking at, this is the way I, this is the way I look at free will myself. Um, I, I take as a hypothesis that what does appear in consciousness, the appearance, the activity, is determined by what is happening in the brain. I mean, the arguments about neurons, et cetera, we could, I could, yeah, won't go into that. But... What happens is if you take the materialist perspective, which then yeah. in that perspective, you could say there's no free will, but then people who believe in free will look to dismantle the materialist perspective and say, oh, there's something we're not seeing. There's ways that consciousness can influence reality or whatever. We simply don't, there are some things that we don't know. So that that is how I would describe it. Yes, there is something we don't know. But that's almost like another aspect of a girdle that may be another incompleteness. Maybe the human mind cannot understand itself. For sure. Be, for, well, you know, never, I was just... These things 100%. All... There are certain things you could say that we could... It's possible that there are certain things we could never understand. For instance, can we understand infinity? Can we actually experience infinity in objective sense? This is one big issue that uh, I have. Uh, mathematicians cannot prove or disprove that infinity is real. We take it as an axiom. You see, right. so we kind of, it's a nice cope out. You take it as an axiom and then you just see what you can derive from it, from the existence of infinite sets. And I mean, absolute infinity or actual infinity as opposed to potential infinity, which is- I was meaning more in terms of our own experience. Maybe it is- Right, but so can you experience this? People and, not able to understand the relationship between the brain and consciousness. It may be that the human mind is one of the limits of the human mind we're not understanding. But, but we are not. So that's right. So then the question is, but if I believe, if I am, now, it is not a fact that I am my mind, my body mind, right? I do not, it's not proven. There is no, as Francis Lucille puts it, and I like this, there is no evidence that awareness or consciousness is limited. There is no evidence for it. There's no evidence you could say that it is unlimited either. Okay, fine. But it, it is not objective evidence. Something can be reproduced, but there's no evidence it's limited. So let's start with that. So there is no reason for me to believe that I am confined to this mind and I cannot have any other experiences that cannot be experienced through the finite mind. There's no reason to believe that. Well, if, if that's the case, if I am not to my body mind, then for sure I can have experience which are not accessible to the body mind. And uh, the previous uh, question was describing such an experience, which obviously contradicts the standard materialistic understanding of how the universe works. And you are in two places at once. We know that particles can do that, entangled particles, but we usually say, oh, but that those, those effects dissipate, there's a decoherence and so on. Yet there is a lot of anecdotal evidence that people experience that. Now, do they experience it as a body-mind? Obviously not, because there are no, at least two body-minds in this moment, right? So in that sense, infinity perhaps can be experienced, but by consciousness itself, by awareness itself, which is not which is not confined in a particular persona, in a particular character. Some things that can be 
Thomas Anderson, the actor, can, can go to a local bar and have a beer, and Hamlet cannot. He's confined to the stage. We can have a dialogue with Thomas Anderson when he is in drag, so to speak, in Hamlet drag, and say, and we can, we can talk all we want about what, what the certain things he can do, he can do, he can, certain, he cannot do. And then we say, oh, but then it means maybe you cannot experience. But underneath Hamlet is the actor. Thomas Anderson and Thomas Anderson for sure can leave the stage for sure can go to local bar and get a beer, but not as Hamlet. Yeah. 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 It's totally. getting dinner. To organize soon. <laughs> dinner in Sebastopol. Yes. Right. Just to say, I mean, the, my final, what I wanted to get to was I totally feel that our experience is determined and I experience free will. I live as if I have free will. Free will is real. That's how I live. It's real for everybody. And we have to accept, for me, it's accepting the two sides coexisting. Well, it's like, thank you for saying that. To me, it's like, I, I like to talk about freedom. I think freedom, to me, is important. I understand for some people, it may not be important. For some people, it may be soothing. It may be useful to feel that they do not have freedom. And I respect that. Please, by all means, live your, your life the way you want. What I disagree with is when someone tries to impose their preference, their ontological, philosophical, metaphysical preference on other people claiming that it's based on science. It is not. It is not. It is your preference. So enjoy it as much as you want, but do not claim it in the name of science. Yeah. Likewise, so, unconditional love. Is unconditional love real? Let's not pretend and say that science says love is a chemical reaction. It does not. There is no proof of that. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I wonder Thanks. if, if you both want to address this question in the chat. Could you speak to free will when causality, wait, is relativistic? Where did it go? No. Hold on. Causality order. Order events is relative. Causality. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, by the way, oh, this is very good. It's a very good point. In all of this discussion of Mr. Sapolsky, Professor, Professor Sapolsky, as well as Brian Green and so on, there is this idea of cause, cause and effect. He says, uh, this neuron acted because something else pushed it. And then just before someone else. So that means linear time. That means time is absolute, which was understanding in science of 19th century. But Einstein's special relativity shows that that is an illusion. There is the notion of simultaneity, for instance, is relative. If you have two observers who, which move away from each other at a certain speed, they will experience simultaneity differently. There is, therefore, the whole idea that this sequential thing makes sense, it will make sense for one, but not for another. There is no sequential thing in the universe for sure. It depends on who the observer is. And that's why we have to, in physics today, we work with quantum field theory and not quantum mechanics, in which you can have pairs of particles and antiparticles coming out of nothing, of vacuum, and annihilating themselves and things like that. You see? So this is a very good point. I'm glad whoever made this point is a very good point. This is also important thing to remember that we are so caught up in the idea of causality. This follows that, this is, this is the cause of that, this is the cause of that, but from whose perspective? From somebody else's perspective, that's not going, to, those events will not be in the same, they will, one will be not precede the other. And just to continue, thank you, Peter. Thank you for your question. I think we can, just to continue on that notion, there is a question from 
your question, saying, is there a topic field in mathematics that speaks, explains the emergence of what looks like causality? I'm going to shorten the question a little bit, unless you want me to read the full. Does it mm. make sense? Uh, well, causality, in mathematics, we have no causality. Mathematics lives in eternity, kind of, you know? So, um, what is that bubble? Yeah. There is a bubble. Somebody is giving me AI. thumbs up, which I, which I, yeah, AI, by the way, I love it just for, 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 I love AI, you know, I, I want to express my gratitude to the AI, our AI overlords for letting us speak and stuff, you know? So <laughs> AI is an extremely, incredibly useful tool. It is the fact that we have it in the year 2023. Uh, and, and doing this amazing stuff is a testimony of the amazing creativity of human beings, of human spirit, of human intelligence. And let's uh, let's celebrate it. Let's stop talking yeah. about do doom and gloom that will come to us and that they will take over. Okay, let's use it as a tool and use it as a challenge and motivation to do more and greater things. When mathematicians say there is no formula. And they silent. There's no, I, I'm on record saying there is no formula for love, you know. So call me a renegade, renegade mathematician, you know, so. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, it has been such a, such a pleasure to, to, to reconnect and to. Yes, for your, me too. Your um, wisdom and all your uh, insights, deep insights. There's a lot here. I personally need to digest and probably we release in this conversation for a while. Mm. And uh, we will be sharing this, the recording and probably uploading it on YouTube. So please share it with your friends as well. Yeah. Do, do you want to talk about what you're doing next uh, yeah. the podcast? the podcast? Is there something you want to share? Yes, I'm, about, I'm starting to think, uh, you know, the, the, I feel like I've done a couple of podcast interviews lately and I feel like um it becomes a bit longer there's so many things i want to share so i am start i'm st i'm thinking of starting my own perhaps early next year um so but stay tuned uh my all the information i post on my social media uh twitter and what's uh, the facebook name? It's a secret, maybe. It's a secret for now, but okay, you will okay. know. <laughs> so, uh, your website, people will find you for you. My website, uh, edwardfranklin.com, and you, uh, all the information will be posted there. Well, well thank you. We meet again. Great, great to be here. Oh, one more thing I want to say. Um, Zaya and Maurizio, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but you have to bring back Science Non Duality Conferences. I think I speak not only for myself, but for all members of the Sand family. When I say that we miss it, we miss the opportunity to be together, to hang out, to enjoy life and to learn from each other. There is no substitute for it. I have not found a substitute. And so please, please bring it back. If not next year, then in 2025. Year after. Yes. Yeah. 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 It will happen. It has to happen. Maybe there slightly is. different form in a different the form. The formula will be different. Formula will be different. But, okay. But the, yeah, yeah, a lot of things will be different, but the, 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 that, that... Consciousness is the oh. same. Yeah. It's a different formula, the same consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. 
We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAN content, available exclusively to SAN members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.